Robert, many thanks for your testimony. Appreciate the blessing of hearing what the Lord did in your life. And it's so wonderful to be able to say that each one of us have our own testimony, some seemingly more glorious than others, but we know that each one is a sinner saved by grace, by the same Savior. And they're all wonderful, and they're all glorious. I'd like us to turn to Matthew chapter 7 tonight, the first book in the Bible in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 7. So I was looking down, as I was looking around a little bit tonight. It's absolutely gorgeous, by the way. You still see the sun catching the top of whatever this is behind you. Feel free to look around if you'd like, but it's wonderful. And this uh, story came to mind that I heard a number of years ago. It goes something like this. It won't be anywhere near the way it was initially told. And it's a story, shall we say, but you'll have to follow along just briefly. Let's say that my wife and I are coming to your house. You don't know anything about us, never met us. But you're preparing, want things to be nice. And so we show up at the front door and we knock on the front door. And the door opens and you being a respectable person, you having very good manners, you greet us well. You say, come on in, we're excited to have you. And there's absolutely no comment whatsoever or facial expression change on us at all. In fact, we kind of just brush on by you, kind of knocking your shoulder out of the way, and we head on into the house. You say, well, please have a seat. You're in here anyway. Feel free. Just have a seat. The music's playing. It's a fabulous little place, you know, this house. The lights are just right. There's a Rembrandt on the wall. I mean, everything is perfect. And he says, welcome. Where are you from? No comment. Can you tell me something about your beautiful little daughter? Now, that should get a comment, not a word, not a facial expression change, not even a look in your direction. And then you say, well, let's get on with it a little bit here. We have to have you for dinner. This isn't going very well. Let's go sit down at the table. And we walk into the kitchen, and the aroma is wonderful. And we sit down to this feast a little bit like we did tonight. Now, you wouldn't believe this, but we had Thanksgiving slash Christmas dinner over here in housekeeping tonight. It was fabulous. Something like that. And we sit down at the table to enjoy what you prepared for us. And you say, listen, feel free. Come sit at the head of the table. Let us go get the food for you. What can we do for you? What would you like to drink? No comment. Not even a look in your direction. You've tried just about everything by this time, and so you get a little bit closer. You're kind of peering into our eyes, see if there's anything going on at all. And finally, I just brush you aside and say, would you please shut up and just be quiet? Now listen, I like the fact that this is warm and nice and cozy and that it's not raining inside and the lights are perfect and the music is perfect and the food smells really, really good. But if you don't mind, I'm just going to sit down and enjoy it. In fact, I'm not even sure I heard you. I'm not positive that you even exist. So if you don't mind just getting out of my way, I'll sit down and enjoy the evening, my wife and I. And it's so much like what many of us do or have done in this world. A world that, as we have heard, has been set up as a stage, a beautiful world, ruined by sin but meant to display God's own Son and all of His beauty. 
to display God's own love through His Son. And we partake of what He's given to us every single day. Every breath that you and I take comes from Him. And every heartbeat comes from Him. And every beautiful vision like we have here, this is a portrait like no other. It's changing every second. Have you ever seen a picture on the wall do that or a painting? And yet sometimes we go about life just as though God does not even exist. Now, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate stepped into the scene of the world. And here in Matthew chapter 7, in fact, let's go back to chapter 5 just for a moment, as long as we're here residing in the mountains. But we have what we might call the greatest preacher with the greatest message, perhaps, that's ever been preached on the face of this earth. In these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Many times we, in shortened form, or affectionately call it the Sermon on the Mount. But I'm here to tell you that's not really what it was. Listen to chapter 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, it says, He went up into a mountain. And when He was set, His disciples came unto Him. I thought of this this afternoon as I looked around. Now, the mountains where the Lord Jesus was, it was not exactly like this, right? And His disciples. But nonetheless, they weren't in the valley when He gave this message. Nonetheless, the multitudes, you'll notice in this verse, has turned into the disciples. Those that were following Him. Those that longed to learn from Him. Those that were willing to sit down and listen to Him. And they wouldn't stay in the lowlands. If he was climbing, they would put the effort into it. And this greatest of messages, given by the greatest of preachers, is going to be given to those that would count him worthy to listen to. And they climbed up with him into this mountain. And they sat at his feet. And he gives one of the most beautiful and most simple statements that's ever been given on the face of the earth. That's rendered here for us in Holy Scripture. But I'd like us to go tonight just to read the very end, the the summation, the consummation of this greatest of messages given by the greatest of preachers. Verse 13, Enter ye in, it says, at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit. But a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth forth not, or that bringeth not forth good fruit, is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not. For it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. We mentioned the other morning that word mega. It's used right here again for great. And mega, great was the fall of it, and it came to pass. When Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at His doctrine. For He taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. There is one hallmark of true Christianity, one hallmark of the Gospel, and it's this. It's absolute, utter simplicity. The Lord Jesus loves you so much There's going to be no confusion in this communication. Listen. Two gates. Two trees. And two houses. And we're going to stand together tonight at a crossroads. Two roads. In front of an orchard. Two trees. At a construction site. Two houses. It's very simple when you get down to it. And so we begin reading once again back in verse 13. The Lord Jesus says right at the beginning, He says, Enter ye at the straight gate. That's kind of an odd way in which this is given to some extent, because what I'm used to, at least in the stories that I ever read, and the pictures that I've seen, is that there's a long road, it probably goes down a beautiful lane with trees on both sides, and at the end of it there's a gate, And right on the other side, there's a house. But this is all the way backwards around. There's a gate that's followed by a road, it says. Very different, isn't it? And he starts out with a simple statement, and he says this, Enter ye in at the straight gate. Now, this is the God of the universe that's speaking. We should be able to conclude the story right there and say, We're willing, we're ready. Our trust is in you. Whatever you say, you point the gate out and we're ready. Nothing else needs to happen. But our God is a God of grace as well. And He begins to describe for us the reason that we should follow on. Now this phrase, enter ye in at the straight gate, I suppose it could be an invitation. It could be a suggestion. It could be a plea. It could be a command. But it's given for us and it rests there in all of its simplicity. Enter into the straight gate. The narrow gate. As we'll see in just a moment. No reason given. Really, no reason should be given. But now he begins to give us a reason. And he doesn't tell why we should enter into that gate. He tells us why we shouldn't. 
stay on the road that we're on, having gone through the wide gate that we've been on. He moves to the negative, in fact. And notice what he says. He says, for wide is the gate. Enter ye in at the straight gate, because wide is the other gate. Say, what is he getting at? Because wide is the other road. Now, you tell me what's wrong with a wide gate and a wide road. We're in the construction business back home. And we drive trucks that are too big sometimes, with trailers on behind them. And let me tell you about a gate. We can't stand them. You actually have to think, right? You have to say, is this going to get through the gate? Is it going to fit? I made the mistake one time, a friend and I, we weren't thinking, obviously. We were a whole lot younger than we are now. We pulled a trailer through a Taco Bell drive-in <laughs> with a long truck. It was the last time we did that. The service, it was okay, but the landscaping didn't do very well. But you, you have to pay attention. And what you like is a wide gate. You don't even have to think about it. You just blow right on through. And you like a wide road. There are no issues at stake. You just carry on. And the Lord right away is going to tell us there's a problem with that. It's easy for us to carry on. It's easy for us not to think. As we had mentioned to us the other day, it's easy for us to fill our minds and our hearts and our lives with amusement. Because to muse means to think, like that great thinker sitting on his seat. But amuse means not to think. And so we fill our lives with that which just carries us on forward with the flow. The winds are fair, the seas are calm, and we just go on. But the Lord says, there's a problem with that. You'll have to pay attention. And so He says, enter in at the narrow gate. The other gate is wide, the, the, the road is broad. Boy, here's a struggle, here's a problem. Is that it leads someplace that you'll never want to end up. It leads to destruction. And it says, many there be which go in there at. It takes some consideration, you see, some awareness, some contemplation, some carefulness when we come to a narrow gate, but not at the broad gate. It's easy to follow the crowd, but you can either be a follower or a leader. And when it comes to your salvation, and when it comes to your eternal destination, and your eternal soul, you wouldn't want anybody else to be leading. The Lord says, it's up to you as an individual. And you know, it's not good to follow the crowd anyway, is it? Because there's a way which seemeth right, it says in Proverbs chapter 14, to a man. But the end thereof are the ways of death. It says very simply. Be aware of the majority. I just jotted down a few little things here that I ran across recently. In 1492, the majority of the world thought the world was flat, quite frankly. In 1492. In this day and age, the majority of the world today thinks that we aren't sinners. In 1842, the majority thought if they bathed in hot water, they would get rheumatism. In fact, there was a law that was passed in the city of Philadelphia that you could not bathe in, in hot water for that reason protection of the masses, you know. That worked pretty well in this day and age with how expensive energy is. But it's not true, is it, in 1842? It's never been true, I guess. You know, the majority of the world today thinks that somehow we're all just going to stagger into heaven, don't they? In 1903, there's a place called Kitty Hawk. 
Majority thought you couldn't fly. Today you climb on a jetliner and you mock them. I had a professor in college. His name was Wilbur Wright. And he was actually a um, nephew. I think he was a nephew of V. Orville and V. Wilbur. And he used to go back. This was He was an old gentleman. He smoked a cigarette. He could hardly walk. And Anyway, he used to go back when he was younger. He knew them. Work in their bike shop. Tinker around a little bit. As I recall, he told a story something like this. That, um, of course, he didn't have any idea why or what the good of it was. But he told the story. And I think their sister's name was Catherine. They had a sister, Orville and Wilbur. And evidently, the day they flew, they wanted everybody to know what they were doing. They thought they'd pass the information on to Catherine. She wasn't in the locale. And they were successful, right, on the sands of Kitty Hawk to fly. And they sent out a telegram to Catherine on that day, who was back home evidently. And they said, we've actually flown however many hundreds of feet it was. We will be home for Christmas. Catherine excitedly takes it down to the editor of the local newspaper. She shows it to him, thrusts it into his face. He reads it, and he says, isn't that nice? The boys will be home for Christmas. And that was all he said. Now, at the narrow gate, you have to read. At the narrow gate, you have to pay attention. Now, he goes on then in the next phrase to say there is something about this narrow gate. Because he says in verse 14... Because straight or narrow is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. All through history, and especially biblical history, but in everyone's history, God has been calling on men and women to make clear choices, concise, consequential choices. Listen with me just very quickly. Moses, as the end drew near in Deuteronomy chapter 39, says, I call heaven and earth to record today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. A choice. Joshua, at the end of his life, and laying down his leadership, he says these familiar verses, or these words, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Listen to Jeremiah in chapter 21 and verse 8. He hears the voice of the Lord telling him to speak to the people on this wise, does Jeremiah. And unto this people thou shalt say, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I set before you, the way of life and the way of death. Two roads, two ways, two destinies. And now God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, He comes before us and in two short verses, at the end of this message, He says there's two gates, two roads, and two destinies. One way then to life, and one way to destruction. I think of Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 that says, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So simple, isn't it, when you get down to it? It's simple because God loves you. And there is only one way. 
The Lord Jesus says, as we're going to look at in just a moment, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by me. And in this world of multi-everything, we have the dogmatic exclusivism of the Gospel, which is so beautiful, so simple. And it's through the Lord Jesus Christ alone Himself. Now this gate, this straight gate, it's a word that you and I again would render more easily narrow. We find different words in the New Testament rendered straight. We might think of it in nautical terms. There are a lot of straits in this world, are there not? The Straits of Hormuz, Gibraltar, other famous straits. The narrows that connect a larger body of water to another. If you look up the definition of this word, Mr. Vines and others will say that it's, it's like this. It's being hemmed in a narrow, a narrow gorge with massive stones on each side. And I thought of this valley in a respect. You take a look at a massive piece of granite like that, but it's closed in. It's narrow. There are a lot of things that you will never bring with you when you go through that gate. Your pride just won't fit. Your own ideas just will not fit. Your own ways to the top just will not fit. And the Lord says, you enter in at the narrow gate. It's hard. It's something you have to contemplate and think about. In the corresponding passage in Luke, it says this. It says, strive to enter in at the straight gate. As though you have to find it and you have to work your way toward it and you have to squeeze, you have to thrust yourself through it. Now, our God is the consummate gentleman. He won't thrust you through it. You see, you have to make the decision. He'll not come in where He's not asked. He is the consummate gentleman. But you'll have to strive. And there's a problem because we say to ourselves now, What road are we on right now? Well, you were born. How did we get on the wide road? You were born on the wide road. Because we're sinners, aren't we? Every single one of us are sinners. That broad road which leads to destruction. The wages of sin is death, says Scripture. Are you a sinner? Well, we hear it a lot from many people pounding down, you know, different reasons why we're sinners. I don't think it's too hard to tell, is it? You go look in the mirror tomorrow morning and find out. Ask your parents. Ask your children. See whether you do the same things in the dark as you do in the light. See whether or not you're willing to say everything that's ever come to your mind. Everything in your thought life. Are you willing to let the world look at that? Do you come up to, measure up to the very glory of God? We're talking about a way tonight. And it would be good for us to look at Romans' way. We call it Romans' road sometimes. But we'll just pick out a couple of these verses here when we're thinking about our sin. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, and some of you young folks with your Bibles, you'll want to turn there and take a look at what the Lord says. And it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, we learn about man's sin in the Bible, don't we? We learn about it in the newspaper. We learn about it in daily life. We learn about it here and there and everywhere. That we have fallen short 
of the perfection of God. I'll tell you, I'm excited about that. Because the Lord says that He has a perfection to put in that place. He says that He has a place for us that's above and beyond anything that we could possibly imagine. A holiness which is far beyond any estimate that we have of what's right and wrong. And so He says, you're separate. You have fallen short of that glory of God. And every single one of us are sinners. We'll never go through that gate until our sin has been taken care of. Until that big load of sin, like the man in Pilgrim's Progress, has let it all go before the Lord. You'll never fit through that gate. And so we're all sinners, aren't we? Now the problem with sin is that it, it pays to sin. That's the problem with it. Sin has its wages. And it pays quite well, frankly. It pays permanently. That's our next verse on the way, isn't it? In chapter 6 and verse 23 of Romans. For the wages of sin is death. That's the remuneration that sin is going to give you. It's death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin has a penalty. But we thank the Lord tonight that sin has a payment. Because God does not stuff His nose at sin. He does. He takes it seriously. He's a righteous God. And He is absolute in His law. And He says, The soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. And the wages of sin is death. Now, if you'd like to pay for your sin, that's something that you can decide to do tonight. And there'll be eternity to do it in. But if you would like God's own Son to impart to you His righteousness, His full payment for your sin on Calvary's cross, to give to you a gift because in His love He has decided to take your place, to take your penalty, to bear up under the almighty, righteous, holy wrath of God for you. And He's done it. He's accomplished it. He's risen. He's ascended. He's been accepted into heaven because of His perfection and the completion of His work. And there He waits. There He prays for you. And there, from there very soon, He's going to come for you. But He puts it in this way that there is a straight gate. There is a narrow gate. On that thought of the righteousness of God, there's a nice old fable, and I believe that the king's name was something like Zeleucus. And this king had set up a law, maybe a bit like the law of the Medes and the Persians that we know something about. And whatever the law or the rule or the regulation was, his son was one of the first ones to break it. The penalty for this broken law was this. Both of his eyes, both of the eyes of the person that, that sinned would be plucked out. Now, a son comes into his presence, having broken the law of his father. And the penalty has got to be meted out. Because righteousness, rightness must stand. And the king's decision is simply this. The king's decision is, go ahead, take out his eye. And then he stops him before he takes the second eye out. 
And he himself gets off his throne and he goes down and sits down and says, Now you take my eye. Two eyes. The penalty paid. But love displayed. And every time that son would look at his father and realizing that something had changed, look a little closer and he's missing an eye because he loved him. But he could look at his father and still say, that he did not trifle with what was right and what was righteous and what was holy. And when we think of what the glorious Father in heaven did for us, when He sent His Son, giving that of which He only had one, Scripture says His only begotten Son. And when the Lord Jesus came into the world and became a man, He forever changed the face of the Godhead. Because there is today, at the right hand of the Majesty on high, a man, altogether God. But He's a man, isn't He? Forever changing His face. Righteousness upheld because He died in love for you. But you can accept the free gift of salvation that He offers. This narrow gate. Now, John chapter 14, if you would turn there with me. We read again about a way. And I'd like us one more time to put our eyes upon it. Jesus saith, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, I don't want to be rude and condescending, but there's only one way to get into this life, isn't there? And that's to be born. There's only one way to get out of it as far as I know. That's to die. There's only one way to get into the next life. And it's to be born. And Scripture terms it this, to to be born again. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the exclusive way to God. We had a potluck a few weeks ago at our local church in Colorado Springs, and it was at a park that not too many people had been to. One person who lived fairly close attempted to give directions to it. They did a decent job. Someone else thought, well, that's kind of hard. You live close. You understand the roads. So he gave a different set of directions. And a brother leaned over to me and tapped me on the arm, and he says, I just found out it's tougher to get to Fox Run Park than it is to heaven. (laughs) It's hard to get there. But the Lord says, there's one way. One way. Now, we live in a world that is absolutely exclusive, absolutely dogmatic. Everything that we know about it is, isn't it? This old law of second thermodynamics. Well, you try to get out from under it, right? Jump up there someday and see if gravity takes the day off. Do you mean that 10 plus 10 is always 20? And that every other answer is just as wrong as every other answer? It's the way it is, isn't it? And God in His goodness and His kindness, He has set up for us a perfect way. Nothing like it. Nothing like His Son. Nothing could be better in His infinite wisdom. Perfection supplemented is what? Perfection supplanted, destroyed, ruined. You cannot add anything to it or take anything from it. And God will have nothing less than perfection. 
And God wants it to be simple. Because in His love, He longs for you to be with Him in glory forever. And He says there's one way. And it's through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on your behalf. All expenses paid in this respect. Oh, it's expensive for God. But the only way that He can offer it to you is as a gift. A narrow gate. Now, our time is moving quickly, so let's look swiftly at the next group of two that we see. Again, Matthew chapter 7. Two gates, and now two trees. He says, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit. But a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Wherefore, says verse 20, By their fruits you shall know them. Now you may want to say to yourself tonight, What road am I on? How am I going to tell? The overriding principle in these verses is simply this, that by their fruit, by your fruit, you will know. Others will know. It's impossible not to know. Because like begets like. Pay a little attention if you have some time tonight with the Lord. And say, Lord, where do I stand concerning Your glory? Where do I stand concerning your perfection? What does the fruit of my life show? As Robert was telling us, his parents knew, didn't they? Parents just know. I don't know why it is, but parents know everything. They're, they're omniscient like the Lord. They're omnipresent like the Lord somehow. They just know. Parents do know. The world knows. And you would be the only one if anyone ever were to say it. And I'm not a sinner. I'm not on the straight road. I'm not on the broad road. You'd be the only one. By their fruit, you'll know them. But let's move very quickly. Because we go from the two fruit trees to a construction site, as we mentioned. And now things change just a little bit. It does so at the end of verses 21, 22, 23. Talking about something that you're to do. A decision that you're to make. A profession that is going to be given by the Lord based upon that decision. I think of what Robert brought before our attention tonight. That our God knows everything, doesn't He? And there are actually people out there that somehow can delude themselves so much that through the whole of their life, They presume that they're doing things for the Lord in His name, saying, Lord, Lord. And it's not until after their opportunity for decision can possibly be made that they hear from the lips of the Lord, depart from Me. And they say to themselves, how could this be? And they say to the Lord, but Lord, they're so deluded. We have to be ever so careful. But now we have two houses. We all know what a house is like. It may take different shapes and different places, but we recognize what it is to be in a home. 
And he says in verse 24, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them. Two things again, very simple. He hears them and he does them. I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Let me ask you a question. When is that storm coming? It's a perfect storm coming, isn't there? Look at the directions from which it comes. The heavens let go. The floods come up. The winds blow in from the side. And one man who in absolute foolishness, like the fool in the book of Psalms that says, No God. Only the fool could possibly say that in his heart. He says, No God. He builds his house, says the Lord, on the sand. And when the judgment comes, and when the winds blow, he begins to hear the timbers creak. And he feels the cool breeze starting to penetrate. And he begins to hear his house falling down all around him. And Scripture says, great is the fall thereof. There is a judgment coming, is there not? When every man's works will be manifest before the Lord, We don't know when we're going to pass into eternity. We have no idea when it's going to be. And the Lord says, be ready. He says, this is the way. This is the gate. If you need a test or two, stop by the wayside of the wide road and test some fruit, if you will. Test the fruit of those that are going with you. Test your own. And then He says, beware. Because there's a building project in process. And there's an imminent, impending judgment to come. And it could happen at any time. As I think of this narrow gate, I think of the soon return of the Lord. I think of the brevity of life. And how there's only one thing between me and glory. That's my heartbeat. That's my human body. And it's the most fragile thing this world has ever seen. And it's God that holds it all together anyway. And I imagine that that gate is beginning to narrow. I just wanted to go with you very quickly. Again, our time is just about up. But notice these things in Scripture. The time period shrinking as we go through Scripture. John says, little children, it is the last days. Methuselah. He could have preached for 969 years. Noah did for 100. That's a lot of years. Nebuchadnezzar He's given a year to turn around and he doesn't. He's given seven years on his hands and on his feet. Jonah, when he preached repentance to Nineveh, he doesn't say a year this time. He says how many days? Forty days. Forty days. Nabal, his wife's name was Abigail, she come and please with David. That's a neat sound. <laughs> Come and please with David. And David says, in effect, 
Okay. We'll give him how long? Ten days. Ten days. You notice it's shrinking little by little. Belshazzar, in Daniel chapter 5, he sees a hand on the wall. And the record is this, Thou art weighed in the balances, and thou art found wanting this night, it says. And we make our way into the New Testament, and there's a wealthy man, says this night, Thy soul shall be required of thee. Herod, he died immediately, didn't he? We never know the moment that that gate may close. It's why the Lord says today, is the day of salvation. We've written yesterday's story. It's already been set in ink. We're still writing today's story, but we may never get around to tomorrow. And the Lord says, enter in. Take it as you'd like to, as a plea, as a command if you're going to live. Enter in at the straight gate, it says. In medieval times, They used to have a horrible torture. It was a torture that had time involved with it. It was a torture where they would take an individual, set him in a room, a nice room, a little bit like that first room that we talked about at the very beginning of tonight's session. These people who were taken, the king, whoever he was, he was their enemy, obviously. They expected a lot worse. Many others were in prison, no food and that kind of thing, but... They were in a nice little room, had a candle in there. They were served three meals a day. It was a nice place. They went to sleep. They got up the next day. They asked for some books. They gave them some books. They did things like this. A couple of days later, they started feeling just a little bit cramped for some reason. And they said, now wait a minute. I thought that it took me two steps to get from my bed to my table to sit down and read. And I thought tonight it only took one. They take a pencil or something, whatever they had, and they marked it out. They took a step and they went to sleep, beginning to wonder that night. And the next day they got up and they said, it doesn't quite seem to be as long as it was. That mark that I made, it's under my table. And little by little, the walls were closing in until finally, their mind having to think upon it moment by moment, days, hours, they would be crushed into eternity. We never know, do we? We never know the time. But the Lord says tonight, He says, there's time. There's room. It's a wonderfully narrow way. Oh, the first step's hard. That's why it's narrow. In fact, the path afterward is not that easy either. But the person that's going to be there for you, you won't bring anybody else along when you step through that gate, but the person that's going to be there for you, is the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That little animal noise or whatever it was that we just heard a minute ago caused me to think of this story in closing. The mole is an interesting little creature, right? You'll never see a living mole with his eyes open. The odd thing is you'll never see a dead mole with his eyes closed. Very odd, isn't it? Now, you and I tonight, our eyes are open, aren't they? Open to what God has told us about. But if we refuse to turn around and turn our back upon the beautiful salvation that the Lord has given to us, make our own way, 
and choose to take our own path, the Lord will not impede you. He is the consummate, loving gentleman. And if you choose to turn your back upon Him, there's coming a day, you've done it in blindness perhaps, but when you pass into eternity and you're separate in death from this world, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be able to look back on nights like this when you heard verses quoted and had opportunities given and enjoyed the Gospel to some extent maybe, but never made it yours. One of the worst things about hell is this. The memory. The memory. Living with it forever. But what a wonderful salvation it is that we know in the Lord Jesus Christ who makes it so simple. Two roads. Two destinations. One way which is right, which leads to life. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, it is tonight that we pray for the conviction through the Spirit of each soul that is here tonight. That they would recognize that they are at a crossroads. That they may never meet again. The gate is open. The Lord Jesus is beckoning. His work is complete. His gift is available unto all, but upon all that believe. And all He asks for us is in simple faith to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. To confess with our mouth that the Lord Jesus is who He is. The One who paid for our sin. The One who rose from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Our Father, we pray that no one tonight that does not know Thy Son as their personal Savior will walk out of this place until they have gone through that narrow, wonderful gate. We just thank You for our Lord Jesus Christ tonight. We pray in His blessed name with thanksgiving for what He has given to us in Himself and in His life. Amen.